Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this journey, all things Dominic Dunn. We are back today for another episode in our New York State of Crime season, and huzzah, we finally made it to the turn of the century, investigators. Our man Dominic was not alive at the time, naturally, in the 19 zeros. All of the scene that we're going to talk about today shakes down long before Dunn will begin his true crime looky-looing or his true crime reporting. But if there were a way to time travel, Dominic would have been on the front row for this one, investigators. This case contains all the pieces that make a story intriguing for our man Nick. Power and privilege and justice and where they all connect and where they all go wrong. This week, it is a lethal love triangle indeed. We will be investigating the murder of Stanford White, the premier architect of the day. Stanford was shot in June of 1906 by a man named Harry Thaw. Harry is a prominent and mentally unstable, very, very wealthy son of a very important family. What causes the murder? Harry becomes consumed with the need to avenge the honor of his young bride, Evelyn Nesbitt. Let's investigate. If the name Evelyn Nesbitt is familiar to you and rings a bell, I'm not surprised. If her face is familiar to you as well, I'm even less surprised. Evelyn will begin her rise as an artist model in the time of breakthroughs in advertising. Her face is on a lot of products. Evelyn is used as a model for the famous Gibson Girl, drawn famously by Charles Dana Gibson, Evelyn was the model used by Lucy Maud Montgomery to craft the look of Anne of Green Gables. Evelyn Nesbitt is mythologized in Hollywood as well as literary history. Her story is told in the 1955 film called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, starring Joan Collins. Evelyn Nesbitt has an appearance in a book and play called Ragtime in a song called Crime of the Century. Even in a recent series, the HBO series Boardwalk Empire, the character Jillian is loosely based on Evelyn Nesbitt. The mythology of her story is probably what you know, but the actual story is far, far more sordid. Evelyn's story has a lot of villains, but she is not one. We'll begin with her. Florence Evelyn Nesbitt is a Christmas Day baby. She's born December 25th, 1884, We think 1884, it could be 1885. The records at the hospital she was born in burned, and Evelyn's mom, well, we'll get there. The Nesbitts are doing fine. They live in Pittsburgh. Evelyn's father is an attorney, albeit not a very great one. Evelyn's mom, Florence, is a homemaker. The young couple has a son that follows after Evelyn, and everything's honestly pretty groovy. Evelyn loves her dad. And dad to Evelyn is very much a unicorn parent. Supports whatever Evelyn wants to do. You can dance. You can jive. You're the dancing queen. Be sassy. Whatever. It is a supportive 
parenting relationship, which nurtures Evelyn in a profound way until he passes away when Evelyn is like 11, 10 or 11. He's a pretty young guy too. He's 40 and dad dies. And now the family is penniless. Mama Florence isn't really business savvy, at least with her first business. She has loaned funds to acquire a home to run a boarding house, but she's not terrific at that. Mom has two kids to take care of. Mom's eventually going to pawn Evelyn's younger brother off on a lot of friends and family. A rough few years, and by the time that Evelyn is 13, Mama Florence is going to head to Philadelphia to try to make a better life. Mom will leave the kids and end up getting a job at Wanamaker's department store. And with a little bit more financial stability, mom will send for Evelyn and her younger brother. And now the whole family works in the department store like six days a week, 12 hours a day. But this is the gig that is going to get Evelyn, who is beautiful and young and 14 and far too young to be exploited like this. But Evelyn's noticed. And there's a woman artist that says, I will pay you $1. which would be equivalent of about $28 today to pose for me for five hours. And Mama Florence is like, whoa, this is way more lucrative than the 72 hours a week I've been working. And Evelyn's kind of into it too. She's a sweet girl. She's a kind girl. And she sees she can help her family out financially. And Evelyn is phenomenal as an artist model. She begins to get gigs all over Philadelphia. She has got the look of the day and she can adapt to a number of different looks. She is truly a lovely, lovely child. And I reinforce the word child here. Now, Mama Florence is paying attention at this point. Mama is real concerned to make sure nothing is Im- nothing improper is happening to Evelyn. And yay, woo, huzzah, things are looking a little better financially for the family. By 1900, Mama Florence has an idea. She's going to take off to New York City. And she's not finding a job, actually. She's come with the whole suitcase of pictures of her child Evelyn as well as letters of recommendation for Evelyn as an artist model. Naturally, the kids are sent for pretty shortly after that, and the family begins a whole new life, and a whole load of trouble is about to start. In 1900, Evelyn is 15. She's beautiful. She has cascading chestnut locks, and her rise is unprecedented. Literally, Evelyn Nesbitt is almost the first superstar. She's a fashion model. She's a print model. She's everywhere. She'll get there a little faster through contributions of very helpful patrons. And these guys aren't necessarily dudes who are looking to take advantage of her. James Carroll Beckwith, whose main patron is John Jacob Astor, will use Evelyn as a model. Again, Charles Gibson, Evelyn Nesbitt is the Gibson girl, the famous archetype of white American womanhood from 1900 to the end of World War I. Mom makes sure that Evelyn's clothes stay on. It's, it's all very respectable. 
The images that she is artist modeling for are not overtly sexual. There is a suggestiveness to them, but everything's very much on the up and up. And photography is about to become a thing. And y'all, if artists love to draw Evelyn, can you imagine how photographers are going to feel about taking her picture? She's used on images of everything, calendars, postcards, matchbooks, all of it. Evelyn is used as the face for every trend-setting new thing of the day. She'll be featured in Vanity Fair, Cosmopolitan, Ladies Home Journal, and Harper's Bazaar. And Evelyn's making some dough. Mama Florence is not really sharing any of that dough with Evelyn, child labor, and all that. Like a lot of other child stars, Evelyn Nesbitt is supporting her family. Cheerily enough, I guess. There's not a lot of money in the family, but her working is keeping the family afloat. And by 1901, Evelyn's like, yeah, modeling's fun and all, but man, I'm a teenage girl. I'm getting a little bored at night. So Evelyn is going to get a job as a chorus girl in a Broadway play called Floridora. I need you to understand how prevalent theater is at the time. There's no radio. There's no television. There's no cinema. People go out and go to the theater. There are dozens of theaters in New York City. Each of those theaters has a chorus line. Lots of chorus girls at the time, but the Floridora... It's kind of a big deal. There are six featured performers in Floridora, and they are said to be the most beautiful women in New York City. So if they're the most beautiful, you got to imagine the chorus line has some pretty good-looking girls in it, too. Evelyn is not one of the featured six, but she becomes a huge deal in the press. Not only are there a lot of theaters in New York City at the time, there are 28 newspapers in New York as well. 28 newspapers, always looking for a story. Evelyn likes the chorus line gig. She'll leave that, though, for a speaking role in a play called The Wild Rose. And that literally is the nicest part of the story. I could end the story here on a really, really good note. We're not going to. We are going to take a break to hear from our amazing sponsors this week. And when we come back, we are going to meet the other two parts of the triangle and talk about the crime and the decided lack of justice. See you on the other side. All right, let's get to the next corner of our triangle. Stanford White. Kind of a complicated guy. Stanford White is truly a brilliant architect. Stanford White is also a pedophile. We have talked about Richard Morris Hunt, and we have mentioned Horace Trumbauer in previous episodes, but there is one architect that outdoes all of them in this time, and it's this guy, Stanford White. Stanford is one of the partners in the biggest and swankiest architecture firm around. The firm is called McKim, Mead, and White. Stanford White is the third and last partner of the firm. McKim, Mead, and White are giants of building, not just in New York City, but literally everywhere. They're building in our fair Gotham. They're also building in Long Island, Montauk, a ton of development in Rhode Island, New York as well. They also designed the Boston Public Library, the Rhode Island State House. McKim, Mead, and White is responsible for the renovation of the White House 
as well as building the National Museum of American History too in Washington, D.C. Like these dudes, they go worldwide. Their firm is an enormous deal. So Stanford White is famous architect, talented architect and designer. Stanford White literally shapes the landscape of 20th century New York City building and design. And he's a gregarious guy. He's lively. He's a well-known man about town. He's got lots of friends, lots of rich and powerful friends. And for real, the New York City landscape is his. Spend a minute just to talk about a few of his most famous buildings in the city because he will work on like 60 projects at a time. There truly is no rest for the wicked. Stanford White builds Columbia University, the Henry Cook Mansion, the Payne Whitney House. Both the Henry Cook Mansion and the Payne Whitney House located on Fifth Avenue. Stanford will design the Tiffany and Company Building, the Herald Building, Bronx Community College, and Pennsylvania Station, too. Stanford designs the initial construction of the Washington Square Arch in Washington Square Park. The first arch is made of wood and paper mache and white plaster. It's first erected in 1889 to honor the centennial of George Washington's inauguration. The folks in New York City love it so much that funds are collected to actually build a permanent Washington Square Arch in Washington Square Park. Stanford White, responsible for both of those. He is also a member and builder of the Players. The Players is a members-only social club. It's a club of actors, y'all. It's founded in 1889 by Edwin Booth, who is the brother of John Wilkes. Oh, and 15 of his friends, including Mark Twain and General William T. Sherman. If you're thinking, how did an architect get membership into the All Actors Players Club? It is because Stanford White has a significant financial stake in Madison Square Garden. Stanford is also responsible for the second of the four total Madison Square Gardens that have existed in New York City. The second version of Madison Square Garden contains not one, but two theaters. Funding is supplied from a number of key New York City players like Andrew Carnegie, the Astors, as well as J.P. Morgan. Madison Square Garden at this time, y'all, what a place. It has two theaters, a cafe, it contains New York City's largest restaurant, it contains a sports arena, which holds 8,000 people, The first of the theaters is a Moorish-styled theater. The second theater is a rooftop theater. Both of these are enormous big deals at the time. Stanford White is also married and he has a son, so there is a veneer of respectability tied to him. But y'all, Stanford is a creeper. He's a predator. I want you to think Jeffrey Epstein a hundred years earlier. Because Stanford will live this life of elegance and connecting with important people and doing important works too. But also Stanford is the president of his own little club called the Sewer Club. And it seems like the main goal of the Sewer Club is Stanford and all of his creepy pedophile friends get together and have these lavish, like Dionysus would blush 
lavish dinners and events where it seems like the main goal was to abuse children. There's one dinner that happens with after a, again, Bacchanalian-style dinner liquor feast. There is a pie, a life-size pie, served at midnight and out of the pie when it is cut comes a young girl named Susie. This becomes hot news quickly in the press and is quickly died down. Why is this a scandal? Because Susie disappears after this dinner she's never seen from or heard of again. There is no action from the authorities. There's no investigation. The sewer club is filled with powerful, powerful players that just wield enough influence for the world to forget about poor Susie. Stanford, also a builder, he has these secret locations that he will call snuggeries. This is where he recruits his victim. Stanford's always kind of on the lookout for more children to abuse. And Stanford is like the hottest thing in New York City. He's out and about nightly on the town, and one night goes to the Floridora, sees the 15, 16-year-old Evelyn performing, and, well, it begins. Stanford will recruit a former victim of his who is 19. She's aged out of his particular taste. See, Stanford is looking for a younger girl, and here is a 15-year-old Evelyn Nesbitt. She's invited to a fancy lunch, She shows up and no one else is attending it. And poor Evelyn's like, where's the party? There's no one there but the three of them. And then there's the suggestion of, hey, let's uh, go to the secret room. And this is where the infamous red velvet swing is kept. In this room, there is a hoop on the ceiling and Evelyn will get on the swing and she's given a parasol and why don't you swing on the red velvet swing, Evelyn, and pop that parasol into the ring? It's a game. Like it's creepy and problematic and what looks a lot like grooming and conditioning a future victim. All of that is terrible. Just to truly add in a little bit of macabre for you here, the location of this particular snuggery is above the first location of the FAO Schwartz toy store in the city. So filled to the brim with his power and wealth, Stanford White is captivated by Evelyn Nesbitt. He's seen her in Florida, right? He's 50, she's 15, but he has set his sights on her. So the thing that Stanford does is he starts to court Mama Florence. Not romantically, but in a I-can-help-you way. Here's everything I can offer you. Here's money, and here's access. I can help you financially. I can be your benefactor, and Evelyn's benefactor too. I'm such a good guy, Florence. I only want to promote you and your family. And this charm offensive will win over Mama Florence. Stanford will win her trust. Evelyn is much less sold on this new idea, but Stanford's working on her too. He'll act like the father that she has lost, and 
Both Mom and Evelyn call Stanford Stanny, and Stanny's helping with the bills, and his association has become very financially fortuitous for the family, and it just gets creepy, y'all. So old Stanny is like, Mama Florence, you haven't seen your family in Pennsylvania in a long time. How about I pay for you to take a first-class trip all alone back to see your friends, and Evelyn can stay here with me. I'll be a proper chaperone. I can babysit Evelyn. Mama Florence is a big fat yes, and off she goes out of town. That night, a chauffeured car comes for Evelyn. I'm going to babysit you, and what do you know? They go to one of these snuggeries. There is a photographer there, and a bear rug, and a bunch of costume changes. And Stanford presents Evelyn with a beautifully wrapped box, and inside is a $2,000 kimono I brought you from the Orient, and it's all fun and games, right? They take pictures, they play dress up, and she'll come again the next day to be chaperoned and Stanford tells Evelyn that day there's a big, big party. So Evelyn shows up again for the big, big party, and there's no one there, just the two of them. There is champagne. Evelyn will pass out, and when Evelyn leaves the next morning, Evelyn knows that she is no longer a virgin. Reading, not even between the lines, Evelyn Nesbitt has been drugged and raped by Stanford White, and Evelyn is angry and confused about all of this. She's a child, right? She respected Stanny and she's questioning, how could you do this to me? And Stanford says, you know, not that big of a deal. It's all over now and you belong to me. This makes you belong to me. You don't need to pose for anybody anymore. I will hook you up. I will hook your family up. You are mine now, Evelyn. So the family moves from a boarding house into a suite of rooms in an upgraded hotel. Stanford is going to send the younger brother off to school. And the conditioning and the grooming continues. There's no other suitor that can get close to Evelyn. He is giving her clothes and jewels and again buying off Mama Florence, who is turning a blind eye to anything improper that is most certainly going on with your 16-year-old daughter who is now laced in diamonds and finery and going off nightly on the town with a 50-year-old man? Like, come on, Florence. Evelyn will say that Stanny is the only man she ever loved. She will call him her benevolent vampire. Now remember, Stanford's married. He has no intention of leaving his wife. And Evelyn's not the only child or person or woman he's sleeping around with. He's sleeping around with all kinds of people. He's still sliming in the gutter of the sewer club, too. Oh, poor Evelyn Nesbitt. Stanford may be an architectural genius, but most assuredly, he is a pedophile as well. And as sometimes happens in this type of structure, Evelyn begins to get jealous that Stanford isn't spending all of his time with her. She takes up a portion of his time, right? And 
He wants to make sure that she's as pretty as she can be. He'll even send her to the dentist to fix a chipped tooth. He is keeping her as a sex toy on a string, but Evelyn, for her part, like, bless her heart, child abuse is terrible. But to Evelyn, like, Stanford is her everything because he has groomed and conditioned her now for, oh, it's just terrible. So this goes on for a while, a year, year and a half. Within 1902, Stanny's going to go fishing for two weeks. And this is when Evelyn Nesbitt will meet a young fella named Jack Barrymore, soon to be the legendary and famous actor John Barrymore. Jack Barrymore, though, is just a young, good-looking fella. He is one of those Barrymores, and he's going to make his move. And Evelyn's like, whoa, 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 wait, you're my age and attractive and Maybe there's something a little better about this experience than the gross old man, but on the flip, because I am a victim of a child predator, Evelyn's thinking maybe I can make Stanny a little jealous too, and Mama Florence is like, don't rock the boat, kid. But Mama Florence is the one who rocks the boat by immediately sending word to Stanford White, who was on his fishing trip. And in no time at all, Stanford is back in the city, shutting that relationship down. Stanford's not mad. He's just like, whoa, hands off your mind. I'm not going to beat up Jack Barrymore or anything. But this isn't going to happen. You're not allowed. You belong to me, Evelyn. I need him to keep his hands off you. But there is a date one night that Evelyn has with Jack Barrymore, and they end up falling asleep and are late coming home. They've had too much red wine. Anyway, when Evelyn does return home, Stanford is at the front door with Mama Florence. And now we're pushed to a level too far. The next idea to kill this romance is to send Evelyn to a girls boarding school. Evelyn is going to be sent to a girls boarding school in New Jersey run by a Mrs. DeMille who is Cecil B. DeMille's mother, fun spiderweb for you there, where Stanford is certainly thinking with enough money, I know Mrs. DeMille, I can keep an eye on her here in a girl's school languishing away. But not really languishing because Evelyn's a teenage girl and I'm not sure that you've heard. She's famous. (laughs) She's the Gibson girl. Evelyn is getting fan mail at boarding school and flowers and gifts. Evelyn has bags of mail that come to her every day. She's getting a lot of attention for a girl in a convent school. Lots of fan mail. So setting the stage, we have Evelyn in a convent school in New Jersey answering her fan mail. We have Stanford across the river in New York City keeping his eye on Evelyn. It's time to introduce the last player in our lethal love triangle. His name is Harry Thaw. Harry Thaw is a very rich heir of a Pittsburgh fortune, like a $600 million fortune today of the family. And Harry is known for his antics. He is called Mad Harry, not just because he lights cigarettes with $100 bills, but because Harry is a little mentally unstable. 
Harry's never really right. Like from a young age, he does a lot of weird things. And if you thought Mama Florence was a villain, just wait until you meet Harry Thaw's mom, Mama Thaw. We're just going to call her Mama Thaw. She's our fourth villain in this story because Mama Thaw is going to cover up all of Harry's bad behavior, his acting out, whatever really bad things he does. He has a helicopter mom. Harry Thaw was born in 1871. So Harry is about 15 years older than Evelyn. He's about 15 years younger than Stanford White. But here's the thing you need to know. Harry Thaw's greatest enemy in the world is Stanford White. He hates him. He's hated him for a long, long time. None of his hatred has anything to do with Evelyn Nesbitt yet. This is long before Evelyn Nesbitt comes into the picture. See, Harry Harry has this blood feud with Stanford White. No one really knows why. Harry has moved from Pittsburgh to New York City, and you have to remember that the geographic traveling of these folks is very, very tiny, right? They're not really getting around in too far of a geographic area. So at some point, Harry Thaw, Stanford White, interact. Maybe Stanford blackballed him for a club somewhere. I don't really know. But Harry Thaw is weird and a little mentally challenged with what indicates some real psychopathy here. Stanford White may have less to do with it than you think, but anyway, Harry Thaw has one obsession, and that is Stanford White. Stanford White in the press will call Harry his Pennsylvania pug. Like, Stanford doesn't care. He's just naughty. He's nonplussed by this poser. He's younger. He's no threat to Stanford. I'm not exactly sure what the manifestation is. But Harry Thaw's job, essentially, is to cause all kinds of trouble for Stanford White long before Evelyn comes into the picture. One of the more troublesome ways, we're going to go back to the Madison Square Garden here. On top of the iteration of Madison Square Garden at this time is a statue of Diana. Designed by Stanford White, Diana is nude, and she is eight stories high. It causes a scandal. Because no one has ever apparently seen a naked woman in New York City and the Comstock laws are a thing. And Harry Thought is funneling money to this. He is funding uh, a grift here, but his outrage campaign is being funded, uh, raising money against how outrageous this naked lady statue is. and And every time in the press, in high society, Harry Thaw can trash Stanford White. He's going to. He's quoted in the press, I will never set foot in a building that has anything to do with Stanford White, which is pretty much the entirety of New York City. So Harry Thaw is going to stick to Pittsburgh back in his secret lair, I guess. Gets out of town. Now that he's back in his secret lair, Harry is, in (laughs) Pittsburgh, his archenemy, Still, you know, in New York City, Harry, gone back to lurking in the shadows, begins to write some fan mail and sending gifts to a sweet, pretty child who's been locked away in Mrs. DeMille's convent school for girls. And Harry Thaw is writing letters, copious letters, 
and sending stockings and pianos to Evelyn, all with the mystery name of Mr. Monroe. And Evelyn is turning these pretty lavish things away. Like, I don't know Mr. Monroe. I don't know who this person is. And then there are more letters and a pleading from Mr. Monroe to meet for dinner. And Evelyn's like, yeah, the food here on Wednesday is crap anyway. Sure. There is a dinner. Harry meets Evelyn. He doesn't just meet her. Harry comes in and kisses the hem of Evelyn's dress and says, Evelyn, you're the loveliest girl in the world. And Evelyn is like, whoa, back off, creep. And then comes the big reveal. Ha ha. I am not Mr. Monroe. I am Harry Thaw and I'm this really rich dude and I want to be your Prince Charming and ride in and rescue you from this fate worse than death. You have been associated with all the wrong people like that terrible villainous Stanford White and I am the right people. And Evelyn Nesbitt is like, see you loser, I'm out of here. But then Evelyn gets appendicitis and Mama Florence Cannot get a hold of Stanford White, but turns out Evelyn has met a potential new benefactor and Harry Thaw is able to get Evelyn to the hospital and he saves her life and and sure, let's let Evelyn recuperate by all going to Europe together, Harry, Evelyn, and Mama Florence. And that's what they do. Oh, gosh. All right, so they head to Europe, and there is a night in a hotel room where Evelyn will tell Harry all the things that Stanford White did to her. And Harry cries, and he slobbers, and he rails, and he's angry. And then it becomes this thing that Harry wants Evelyn to relive her trauma over and over and over And this is a bit that they will do in their relationship a lot because Harry Thaw is horrible just in a different way than Stanford White. But this first night, upon hearing all of this, Harry Thaw is wrecked. And you poor child, and I will totally love you, and you are not ruined, and let me help you. I will be your savior. Stanford White is the devil. Mama Florence is going to end up going back to the States, leaving her teenage daughter and a man twice her age in Europe alone. So I'm sure that's probably not fine. Everything's going to take a really, really bad turn at a castle in Austria, where after reliving the story yet again, Harry this time is going to beat Evelyn with a writing crop and be far crueler to her in her reliving the trauma, like just cruelty. Both Harry Thaw and Stanford White are models of bad behavior. Both men view Evelyn as their possession, and each of them are getting out their sadistic sexual predilections on this poor girl just in uh, opposite terrible ways. So Harry begins to break Evelyn down enough to make Evelyn begin to feel grateful for Harry's love, because otherwise no one would want to marry her. And Evelyn, you know you're used goods, honey, and I'm your guy now. He is conditioning and grooming her 
in a different way than Stanford White, but still doing it. They play this game for two years. Evelyn and Harry will marry in April 1905. Harry will pick out Evelyn's dress. Real stunner here. It is a black dress with brown trim. The two will marry in Pittsburgh. And uh, Harry's mom, remember Mama Thaw? She is like, you have got to be kidding me. You married a chorus girl? Mama Thaw really isn't going to make the best of it although she'll pretend that she will. Mama Thaw just is a monster mother-in-law, and Evelyn is kept in the house. She's locked in the Thaw mansion, essentially as a sex slave in a gilded cage. There's no more acting. There's no more theater. You are a proper lady, and now you sit at home in a room locked away, and that's all you do. Also, Evelyn is not allowed to talk about any portion of any part of her life that has happened before her marriage to Harry. And things are, I don't know, okay for a year honeymoon period, I guess. And Harry's back at home. So with Mama Thaw watching, I guess he's on his best behavior. And he should be feeling pretty good about himself. He got the girl. He put her in a gilded cage. He has bested his enemy, Stanford White. He's got leverage if he ever needs it. We should probably just let this blood feud rest now. There's no need to push it any further. Will Harry Thaw do that? Not a chance. Maybe Harry's tired of being on his best behavior, and this is where he gets a big idea. Hey, Evelyn, let's take a second honeymoon. This is the summer of 1906. We are almost to the first crime of the century. You know how they always call things the crime of the century? This was the first crime that actually got the moniker crime of the century. So Harry has planned a trip to Europe, and Evelyn and Harry are going to head to New York a week before they leave on the boat. And Evelyn thinks this is a little weird. Like, really? You hate New York City because Stanford White built it and you can't go anywhere in it, remember, Harry? But all right. It is the night of June 25th. Evelyn will meet Harry in a bar. And when Harry shows up, he is already drunk. He will pay a $3 tab with a $100 bill. They'll have dinner with friends. And then, surprise, there's a debut show. New show <laughs> happening at the rooftop garden at Madison Square Theater that night, and Harry has tickets. The new show is called Shamzel Champagne. And the thing that Evelyn knows is that Stanford White has a financial stake in Madison Square Garden, and he never misses an opening night on that rooftop theater. He built it, right? And Evelyn thinks this is a little weird, right? Harry is famously known for never setting foot in a space that Stanford White has anything to do with. And now you want to go into the actual lair of Stanford White for the opening of Shamzel Champagne, what is going to be a terrible show on its first night. Also, <laughs> it is a hot June day in the city and Harry Thaw is wearing a long and bulky trench coat. So I can see that maybe 
Evelyn has some concerns. So Evelyn and Harry and another couple all head to Shamsel Champagne and no Stanford White yet. He hasn't shown up and Evelyn's like, fantastic. We are almost to the end of this terrible show. Let's get out of here. And 10 minutes before the performance ends, in walks Stanford White going to his reserve table. And Evelyn is like, show's over, everybody. Let's go. Let's beat the crowd. Rush at the end. And all four stand up. Like, get Harry out of here now. And so they'll all walk to the elevator. And Evelyn turns around. And Harry is not with their group. Harry Shaw is at Stanford White's table. Harry will shoot Stanford White three times at point-blank range in front of 1,000 witnesses on the rooftop theater of Madison Square Garden. Harry Thaw says he ruined my wife. And after shooting, Stanford White looks around for applause like Harry Thaw is going to be the hero of the city, but that is not what happens. What happens is pandemonium. The fire manager escorts Harry down, gets his gun, takes him to the police station, and the police arrest Harry Thaw immediately. He is charged with capital murder in the first degree. There's no need to investigate. 1,000 people have seen this murder happen. Lots of witnesses. Oh, gosh. All right. Harry is going to be sent across the Bridge of Sighs to the tombs. It's a legendary prison known for its toughness and terribleness, but it's not tough on Harry because Harry is having all of his meals sent in from Delmonico's. Remember the restaurant that catered Mrs. Astor's Big Ball Delmonico's? Harry in the tombs has a valet and a butler, like rich people justice, right? Harry Thaw's lawyers are like, buddy, you are not doing yourself any favors with all of these photo opportunities you are using in the press, remember 28 papers, about how tough you have it in the tombs. You're not really appealing to the common folk here. Maybe tone it down. The defense attorney in the beginning for Harry is William Jerome. Another associated spiderweb here for you. William Jerome is a cousin of Jenny Jerome's, who will famously be marrying Churchill in no time at all in order to be the mother of Winston Churchill. Jenny Jerome is a super fun story. We'll add that to our list for one day. Anyway. Jenny Jerome's cousin, William Jerome, the first attorney for Harry Thaw, is like, Harry, you'd have to be insane to do this in front of a thousand people. Certainly, let's plead insanity. That's your shot, man. We'll plead insanity. You'll go away to the sanitarium for a few years. Let it all die down. Rich people justice. You'll be out before you know it. Mama Thaw and Harry don't want to do that. They want to use this thing called the unwritten law. The unwritten law is not a real law. It is the unwritten law. The unwritten law is one that says, as a man, if another man has ruined the honor of your wife or sister or daughter, that you can just kill him. And that's fine. Murder is justifiable in that case because you are defending the honor of a woman. Juries are made of men at this point. 
there are a lot of folks that get away with a lot of crimes because of the unwritten law. There's even a former cabbie of Stanford that will be quoted saying he was only surprised that it was a husband who shot him and not a father. So maybe in 1906, this unwritten law rule could work in getting Harry off. William Jerome is still like, insanity, totally the way to go. But Mama Tha <laughs> and Harry have decided that the plan is to have Evelyn Nesbitt testify. To relive the 21-year-old poor child who has been not only victimized by Stanford White, the murder victim, but victimized by her husband. Now her job is to go to court and relive the trauma game for the entire world. In return for her doing this, Evelyn is promised to be taken care of financially by the Thaws, and Evelyn will essentially relive all the terrible things yet again, but Evelyn doesn't really want Harry to go to the electric chair, which is nice, and William Jerome is horrified by this idea. Like, people don't give this kind of testimony in court. People don't talk about this in court. This is terrible. We should not do this. And millions of dollars are poured into Harry's defense. William Jerome is going to get fired because of his rabble rousing. And anyway, off to trial it is. Crime of the century, y'all. This is the first time in history that a jury has been sequestered. It is scandal. It is the crime of the century. There are 28 papers and there is a daily need for each of those papers every day to print it all, which is mostly talking about how scandalous, salacious, and hot it all is, and details are literally unprintable. In February 1907, the trial begins. Harry is thinking he's probably going to be going to the electric chair, but here comes Evelyn Nesbitt in a new outfit, virginial, and provides her testimony revealing the conditioning and grooming of the abuser that Stanford White was and what a leech and he took advantage of me and really demonizes Stanford in court and the jury is in lockdown and oh God, it's just scandalous y'all. And so by April, the trial is coming to a close and there's almost a three hour closing statement made by Harry's defense appealing to the chivalry and talking about knights and soiled armor and all that noise. And you would have done the same thing if it was a woman that you loved. The prosecution and their closing statements are like, dude, you planned all of it. You came to New York in the summertime with a rifle and a trench coat and bought tickets to a show that you said you'd never go into the place the show was. Like, this is premeditated murder. And here's the thing, the jury can't agree. There's a mistrial. In 1908, there is another trial that's going to be coming up. But in the meantime, the Thaws decide to make a movie about the unwritten law trying to sway the public that Harry should get off for this murder. But the public has now been conditioned and groomed, right? 
Like, they're a little less likely to be swayed by the sordid details a year later, and maybe, Mad Harry, you really are mad. Harry, this time, is declared insane with diminished capacity and is found not guilty from temporary insanity. Harry is going to lay low, though, for a little while. Diminished capacity is going to go to the asylum for about seven years. Throughout this entire time, Mother Thaw is telling Evelyn you can't divorce him. I will take care of you financially, but even Mother Thaw doesn't do that. Evelyn's kind of out in the cold, and it's only going to get worse, because by 1915, Harry Thaw gets out of the asylum, and he has now had seven years to craft and perfect his weird own sadistic routine. Harry will invite a young boy to New York City to be his protege. This poor child's name is Frederick Gump Jr. And when Frederick Gump Jr. arrives in the city, Harry's going to lock him away in very much his own snuggery and abuse this poor kid. And after some time, this poor child escapes Harry's torture, goes to the police, and in no time at all, Harry's back in the asylum. Like, power, privilege, and justice, not at all. Money can do a lot to save you from consequences. On that return visit to the asylum, Harry's going to stay for about another seven years. And Evelyn's like, I can't anymore. (laughs) I can't do this. But in 1910, there was a child. There was a son. Evelyn says there was a conjugal visit in the asylum, and Evelyn will claim that the son is Harry's trying to retain some part of that thaw money, but that is not going to happen. Evelyn's not going to stick around for the return trip of Harry's to the asylum. The divorce occurs in 1915 with none of the promised money or help from Mother Thaw that Evelyn was promised. Remember, Evelyn saved Harry from the chair and leaving Evelyn very much to suffice her own new life on her own. Once Harry Thaw is released from the asylum, he will pull out that whole Mr. Monroe act from before, advertising for girls in the paper that he will continue to abuse. Harry Thaw will die at the age of 76 in 1947. Mama Florence, still a villain, Mama Florence keeps every bit of the money that Evelyn has made, which was like $25,000 at the height of her career. And after the whole crime of the century scandal, Florence will remarry and head off to Pittsburgh. And when reporters come to her door, Mama Florence will say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have never met Stanford White. Evelyn Nesbitt, again, left out in the cold, no money, as promised from Mama Thaw, will act in some silent screen pictures. She'll do a little vaudeville. Evelyn will remarry, but that marriage is final by 1933, and the era of the Gibson girl has long, long passed. Evelyn suffers through numerous addictions in her life, but eventually rises to a relatively calm and peaceful life. She doesn't relive that tale anymore. 
1955, Evelyn will get about $10,000 for being a consultant on a Hollywood film called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, again starring Joan Collins in one of her first American films. Joan Collins in this role replaces Marilyn Monroe, who has been deemed from the studio as too old for the part. Evelyn Nesbitt will say about Joan Collins that her breasts are too large for the role. Evelyn Nesbitt, y'all. She'll end up living in California with her son and his family. She will open a pottery studio and live to the ripe old age of 82, dying in the year 1967. And that, investigators, is the lethal love triangle of Stanford White, Evelyn Nesbitt, and Harry Thaw, the crime of the century, at least for the first decade of the 1900s. Thank you so, so much for tuning in to this episode of Done and Done, as well as joining me for the ride that 2021 has been on our podcast, All Things Dominic Dunn. I want to wish each of you the warmest, safest, and most magical of holiday seasons, as well as a happy new year. Your favorite investigator has a little research to do in shaping up our next segment of episodes in our New York State of Crime series. Done and Done will be returning back to you Monday, January 10th, 2022. Doesn't that sound amazing, 2022? If you have a little time to snuggle in and read over the next few weeks during your holiday season, now is definitely the time to begin reading Dominic Dunn's novel, The Two Mrs. Grenvilles. This thinly veiled fictional account of the death of William Woodward Jr. by his wife, Anne. We're going to be covering the Woodward case in detail within the next block of episodes, as well as a number of associated spiderwebs around that particular case. And I would be doing you an injustice if I didn't give you a heads up for all my avid investigator readers out there. If you would like to read the fictional account to get yourself ready for the next block of Done and Done. Again, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening all year. Thank you for your fantastic reviews and telling a friend and all your kind feedback. I can't wait to be back with you for your next Dunday, January 10th, 2022. And until we meet again, friends, happy holidays, happy new year, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.